Hello once again, dear listener. You are back with us. This is Hit Factory, coming at you for the third week in a row during spooky season. We've got another creepy one for you. Maybe even the creepiest of all 90s movies. Not just creepy. Fucking scary as fuck. That shit's scary. That shit's scary. Yeah. Go fucking go! It is, of course, the Blair Witch Project from the very end of the decade, 1999. I watched this movie like the second it came out on DVD. My friend Marianne and I, we were in middle school at the time. We stayed up super late one night, giant fucking house. The rest of the house was dark and we are pissing ourselves. And then we have to go up to her fucking room on the third floor Mm-mm. because it's a giant house. No, thank you. And this like huge ceilings and, you know, just like quiet. And I, I mean, I was literally terrified to go to sleep that night, beyond terrified. And I haven't seen it, had not seen it since then, which was 20 plus years ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, for one, had not seen this film until probably about five or six years ago. I was absolutely caught up in the marketing campaign for this movie because how could you not be at the time? I remember the posters. I remember the trailers running before movies that made everything seem like it was totally real and that this was like actual documentary footage that was recovered. I was transfixed and gripped by people talking about this movie before I ever saw it and knew that it was something I needed to engage with, but didn't do so until not long ago. When I did, I also made the brilliant idea coming home one night late from work uh, to put it on on my computer in my dark bedroom and maybe just like fall asleep to it. Dumb. I did not fall asleep to it. No, of course you didn't. I I stayed up for its, uh, its full 80 minutes. I did not watch it for the last 20 years because I vowed not to. No, (laughs) this movie is one of those movies that makes you go, fuck windows. Fuck windows. Fuck windows. Fuck the forest. Fuck doors. Fuck trees. Fuck tents. Fuck tents. Fuck dark anything. Fuck rocks. Fuck nighttime. Fuck creeks. (laughs) Fuck buildings. Uh, Fuck stairs. Oh my God. Fuck stairs. Corners. Yeah. Like it's... We could not watch this in the dark. We we watched this movie with the lights on. It's 80 minutes of sheer terror. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the thing about it is is like it's it's not 
There are no jump scares. There are no, you know, loud sounds. There's nothing in it that would be what you might consider like traditionally, uh, you know, heartrending or or these bursts of sudden terror. But the entire movie just has this sort of ambient intensity and fear and you can't escape it. And when you're watching it, one of the things that I noticed about it on this viewing, the found footage lends itself so well to it being as scary as it is because you are simultaneously, like the character Heather says, wanting to divert your eyes and not look at what's around the corner, but also because the footage is so grainy and the camera's moving so much and because everything is so unclear, you're forced to interrogate every frame. So it has you putting your face like right up to the glass Nothing, like I said, ever jumps out at you, but you were always sitting right there just anticipating something coming at you. And because there aren't any jump out moments, you have that preternatural dread of something being there. Right. It never shows you anything. No. We, we, we never, in fact, see any living thing after they go into the woods besides the three filmmakers besides Josh Mike and Heather and because you're you're squinting metaphorically and sometimes literally to grasp at what's going on and and orient yourself in the story and the space you're already you already have this investment that makes you more vulnerable. Yeah, it's a film that just at face value alone, 100% worth the experience and watch if you've never done it before. I won't be watching it for another 20 years, but I'm glad that I, I dropped back in and now I'm done. Yeah. I'm done and we're gonna talk about it and then I'm not gonna watch it. Absolutely. I gotta say one thing just in reference to, to the horror cinema that we've been watching over spooky season. Yeah. I think with the exception of, of last week's movie, I'm always surprised by how much politically and socially we can wring out of movies that don't seem like they have much there. Uh, but I gotta say, I left last week with a greater appreciation of Tim Burton as a filmmaker than I started. Oh, good. Let me explain before we move on. <laughs> that movie is uh, impervious to political analysis. And normally I would say that's a bad thing, but so many filmmakers, especially in the 90s, tell on themselves when we start analyzing the politics and the, and the actual messages and themes of the movie. Mm -hmm. Tim Burton's film, specifically here and probably his other ones from the 90s, incredibly apolitical. And because of that, I actually award him maybe the, the title of a transcendental filmmaker oh. he's working and operating specifically on the spiritual and aesthetic plane and because his movies devoid of politics i think it actually aged a lot better than some of the stuff we talk about potentially there are movies he's made where i could argue that there's definitely a political bent or some sort of larger societal conversation sure. edward scissorhands is one yeah. of them hatred of the suburbs and hatred of dads a lot of a lot of stuff we could go into <laughs> with with edward we'll probably do that one at some point we definitely will but i would agree with you that he is often very much operating on the aesthetic and spiritual plane which means that he's either accidentally or purposefully not engaging in anything too terrestrial. <laughs> mm -hmm. But see, this this film we're talking about now, Blair Witch, 
The Blair Witch Project. I should be distinct about that because there yes. is a sequel from 2016 called Blair Witch. Okay, but up until that that fucking sequel, everyone just called The Blair Witch Project Blair, Blair Witch. Witch. Right. So that film has tainted our capacity to discuss the film with a shorthand. Its, right, by its abbreviated title. Yeah, it's fine. By any means, what I was going to say is that this film, for all that it does on just a purely experiential level, has some interesting uh, political proxies today it and do. has and also tells on itself a little bit in terms of just the general atmosphere and and the feeling of dread that it evokes specifically as it pertains to the end of the decade, which I know we'll get into. Well, I mean, that's what all art does, right? It's right. reflective of a current moment and a current perspective. That's what I'm trying to say. The Blair Witch is art. The Blair Witch is an artistic I mean, we have an entire film. fucking podcast devoted to that concept, so hopefully it holds up. It does. It absolutely holds up. <laughs> but right. let's let's take care of some technical specs here and, and talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on behind the camera, and then we'll get into the meat of this movie. Let's do it. All right. Well, the film, like we've already said, came out in 1999. It was directed by Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick, I believe it is. Maybe Myrick. Um, the film stars Heather Donahue... Michael Williams and Joshua Leonard playing fictionalized versions of themselves with the same names and all. Not a lot to talk about in terms of accolades behind this movie, which is part of its appeal and part of the reason that it was uh, received so well. The film ran a budget. There are some disputes as to what it costs, but all in all, following even like marketing, what have you, the, the film ran up a budget that was very slight, like somewhere in maybe $100,000. Yeah, I was going to say under hundred k yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think even the initial round of filming and reshoots and everything, even after it had been acquired by Artisan Films, still brought the thing in at sub $100,000 for the full budget. And then the film wound up grossing during its theatrical run just shy of $250 million. That's a that's a moneymaker right that there. Is, that's a hell of a margin. In <laughs> fact, it is one of the most successful independent films ever released. Mm-hmm. At the time, in fact, I think the highest grossing independent film proximate to its budget that had ever been released in theaters. Absolutely. Uh, the thing caused a nationwide stir. Oh, yeah. Everyone was talking about this movie, not least of which because of its success at utilizing the internet, which at the time of this film's release was still a a medium very much in its infancy. A fledgling internet. Exactly. And they were quick to take elements of the film's narrative and turn them into police reports, photographs, videos, start online forums in which people online could go and discuss the veracity of particular elements of the film. They had a timeline of events going all the way back to the 16th century to help spread the mythology and the the myth of the Blair Witch herself. They had a lot of great digital content before like content marketing in the digital space was even a thing. Right, before there was a language for it. Totally. And before viewers even had a literacy for what that kind of thing was. Yep. Which made this film, you know, the topic of a lot of conversations about how much of this is real, how much of this isn't. Mm-hmm. Even the marketing at uh, its premiere at Sundance early in 1999 before its theatrical release marketed the film with missing posters for the three film stars all over Park City. 
So the film, is, its legacy lives on and endures, I think, not just because, like we've already said, it's batshit scary. It's very well made technically. It is. Uh, and it also is just the precursor to so much of this digital marketing space that now everything has to occupy in order to be successful. And it was so novel at the time that it it had the room and the heft to make a lasting imprint on a viewing audience and on a culture that received the movie. There wasn't anything else like it prior to that movie. This movie is largely responsible with revolutionizing and popularizing the found footage genre um, in which the film is meant to look like it's being shot by people in the film, lots of first person perspectives. Uh, but there are a couple of films that actually predate this that use a very similar format and have very similar narratives, in fact. There's one that came out in 1998, just the year prior, called The Last Broadcast, that is sort of a mockumentary that incorporates some footage that is supposedly discovered by some people who went and disappeared while going out into the woods. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, an even earlier film from 1980 called Cannibal Holocaust. Right, I remember you mentioning that. By a filmmaker named, I, I'm, hopefully I get this right, Ruggiero Diodato is his name. I have known about this film for a long time and have purposefully stayed away. Some of my sicko friends were really drawn to this movie. Oh, fun. Because of its legacy. One thing about the movie is that there is actual animal violence and brutality in it, where they didn't have anybody uh, focused on animal rights or, or, or safety. And so there's like the real slaughter of like a turtle that gets like pulled apart by the shell. Okay, I've heard about this movie only yeah. because I've heard of the animal violence. Yes. One of the other things about it too is that the, the gore in the film is rendered with such a level of like verisimilitude that the filmmaker was actually tried in Italy because many believed it to be a snuff film. Gotta do your due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it was a different time too, right? Like this is pre-internet oh age in a in a instance where all of this, the veracity of the content had to be proved in a court of law as opposed to people just digging it up on the internet like with the Blair Witch. Well, and when I say there was nothing like it, I don't mean that formally there were not any movies that operated on the same plane, but... In terms of all of the fourth wall, sort of beyond the screen trappings that we're talking about that were very much a part of the viewing experience and extended into the real world, it was a first of its kind. Totally. And really last of its kind. People adopted this found footage uh, genre for the film medium and did various versions of this, you know, with people in first person perspectives, ones that come immediately to mind are horror films like VHS and uh, Wreck, Paranormal Activity, which has like it's a whole franchise made out of it as well. Um, but films like Cloverfield did it. There's also a supernatural thriller from 2012 called The Conspiracy. And, and people use this formal technique a lot. But one of the things that always pulls you out is that suspension of disbelief. You always ask yourself like, or tell yourself rather, that there's no way they would keep filming. There's no way that the camera would be on or, or these shots are too clean and everything is framed very deliberately. Well, and the more internet literate we become and the more sort of technically savvy we have evolved to be as a consumer society, we have more scrutiny 
with certain things. There are plenty of things we have no scrutiny for when it comes to consumption of digital content. But in terms of another movie having the sort of impact and persuasiveness that this one did, the further into the aughts and the 21st century that you get, the more discerning an audience you have. We'll get into that. Totally. That's a whole that's a whole thing about there, this movie. There are very specific formal techniques that the filmmakers use to make this feel much more realistic and believable than other found footage films. And and character aspects as well that help make it believable. Absolutely. Before we get into that, you want to hit us with a synopsis? I will hit us with a synopsis. Sounds good. Going to keep it short and sweet. Hey. It's, it's a nice Spartan film in terms of its plot. <laughs> 80 minutes, start to finish, three characters, that's it. Yeah, it's great. The synopsis is pretty straightforward. Three student filmmakers who are in some place in Maryland outside Burkittsville? Burkittsville, Maryland, yeah. Burkittsville, Maryland. It's, it's the, the Black Forest Hills, or sorry, the Black Hills Forest, I believe is where yes. they go. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's, it's it's somewhere out there. It's somewhere in the woods. Somewhere in the woods. Heather, Josh, and Mike. Heather is really the, the driving force behind the project itself, the Blair Witch Project. And it is her desire to go out and make a documentary about this mythology of a witch that may or may not live in the woods. And there's sort of all these other stories and strange and tragic happenings that took place in and around this town and in and around the woods in particular that may or may not be related to the witch. The The thing that's also interesting about the, the gang is that they like sort of know each other, but one of them I think might who um who is their kind of like audio guy is a friend of Josh's. Right. He's, so he's less well known by Heather. He's not as known by Heather and is there to kind of do his his sound gripping and whatnot and and have that be the end of it. So anyways, they go into the woods, some scary shit happens, things escalate and by the end of the film, things have sort of fallen to pieces and it culminates in a house. And that is all you need to know because everyone knows the ending of this movie. Most people do. And if you don't already, we're not going to spoil the last three minutes of the I film. mean, we may spoil it eventually, but that's all yeah. you need to know in terms of a synopsis. And one of the things that, that, that makes this movie really watchable for me is not even really the scariness of it, but it's the dynamics between the three and how they shift over the course of the movie and how believable an evolution that shift is if you've been on any sort of camping trip or even just in a stressful situation with another human or another set of humans it feels very believable and and that's one of the things that i found most compelling about the movie you won't go to sleep that night sheer terror the end yeah i do want to go into this thing that you talk about with the dynamics between the three characters so in, Let's. in doing a little bit of research on the production one of the things that i've thought was so interesting about the way this film is made is that the actors were shooting everything themselves. Mm -hmm. So already something that adds a certain level of veracity to the proceedings in a way that a lot of these found footage horror films don't achieve. 
and does also make the a lot of the shots and the scenes feel less staged, right? right. Because they're not necessarily approaching it with a cinematic eye. Mm-hmm. They're doing, you know, maybe have some light direction from the director, but but for the most part, it's it's their decision making in the moment. Yeah, supposedly they did a crash course with Heather specifically on how to to shoot with the camera, and then the other two, Josh and Mike. Uh, also learned how to handle the film camera and, and the audio equipment that they needed. They shot for eight straight days actually in the forests in Maryland, and they actually had them camping overnight. They had minimal interaction with the filmmakers and with the cinematographer who was there supervising and would often go to sleep and not know what they were going to experience. So a lot of the interactions that you see and a lot of the reactions you you get from the actors to the sounds coming from the woods and twigs snapping and things showing up outside of their tents the next morning is all genuine. It's all Mm -hmm. of them actually waking up to these experiences that they are not prepared for and have no idea what's gonna happen next. In fact, one of the most climactic scenes in the movie, there's a moment where they brace for a a sprint out of the tent because they hear something outside that starts hitting the side of the tent and terrorizing them. There really was a member of the crew dressed head to toe in like white long johns and and, and hosiery and, and things over him to make himself look like this spirit. Like a spirit. And for a moment, you actually hear one of one of the characters react and say something like, what the fuck is that? Hurry up! I'm coming! My boots aren't laced! Oh my god, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Oh shit! They were supposed to, to glance quickly over and capture him on, on camera. They were hoping that they would. Um, but whoever was handling the camera, Mike, Josh, or, or whoever it happened to be, uh, didn't do that thing. So it adds to this level of of realness and, and kind of in the moment sort of insanity that, that there are all of these little ideas that they played with and just like little things that they did to toy with the actors. Uh, but they ended up with something like 20 hours of footage to edit down to this 80 minutes. One of the things that you talked about with the characters themselves is so often in these movies and in, and in film in general, narratively, you have characters that kind of occupy a lane, mm-hmm. right? You have a character and, and some of them have arcs and some of them don't. And in horror movies, you often have like, you know, the kind of like skeptic who's like one of the first people right. to go. And then you have the character who's like too afraid of everything. And then you have the other character who's like the brave one. And, and they all sort of stay in their lanes and occupy that space and, and embody that character. One of the things that I find so realistic about this movie is that day to day, moment to moment, the character dynamics shift so that it often becomes two against one in some sort of hostile encounter and then reverts immediately to two of them also having to be like a comforting force to one who starts to cry or loses it and, and is is really feeling it. It, just, it adds to this kind of like swirl and dizzying effect that the movie has of being completely lost in this sort of labyrinth. Yeah, and it's the thing that feels so real. The found footage aspect and the, the formal qualities of the movie, yes, but the relationships and the dynamics between three humans that 
weren't written really like it wasn't written on paper say this thing and have this reaction from what i understand in doing our research there was a little bit of direction about key moments that were going to take place in the course of the film but that the rest was mostly improvised or sort of intuited by the actors as they went along i think that's why there is a genuineness to the shifts and the ebbs and flows of which lanes they're occupying as you say that is totally compelling and totally keeps you enraptured and clocked in on their every move and every part of their conversation or what they don't say to one another while I agree with you that they're often shifting perspectives or or sort of like emotional states, the thing that also makes it believable is that the, the personality traits of the characters aren't fungible. Right. Heather still maintains the, the things about her that drive her to move forward and, and be the person that she is, even when she's in a heightened state of fear. I think the same can be said for Josh and Mike, who are slightly less fleshed out, but we still get a sense of who they are. And each of those pillars of their personality maintain throughout the course of the movie, even when, you know, Heather, who is largely unshaken, but is also the one that believes the stuff the most, even when she starts to really get scared and start to question what the fuck they're doing, she still exists in a space that feels like the Heather we've learned to love and know over the last <laughs> 75 minutes. Right. Well, and one of the things that I think explains away, like we already talked about, a lot of the reasons why the footage is so comprehensive and why it actually tells a story is given to us in those non-fungible character traits. Heather is the main reason for that. Right. Specifically, there are multiple points in the film where Josh and Mike criticize Heather for having a camera on in the middle of crisis. Mm -hmm. where or they... even in the middle of nothing happening. Right. Right. And she wants to document the film within the film, right? She's also using the high 8 camera, the camcorder, in a lot of ways to document the actual making of the thing that they're doing. But using it as sort of these confessionals, like Josh and Mike say, often just shooting for the sake of shooting because she can't put the camera down. And wants to get it all. Right. She says that several she, times. She does. And so by the end of the film, we know why she's carrying a camera into the house. And then I think I pointed this out to you too, where, you know, when we were kind of trying to like poke holes in the reasoning behind the cameras being there, we were quick to to say, no, Mike is using the high eight camera at the end mm -hmm. and he's using it because there's a light source on it. Yes. Like he's using it as a flashlight. Not only that, but by the end too, when we're talking about this like technical verisimilitude and and the you know the the feat of making everything feel very real, the DAT recordings go away, you know, probably like 60, 70 minutes into this movie. Yep. And at the very end, all of the audio from Heather, who's carrying the film camera, is heard from far away because Mike is down a staircase or in the basement already or upstairs. It feels so real in a way that no movie like this or one that adopts this found footage tool has been able to achieve with such great success. I totally agree the the blend and the nuance of their personalities 
and of the technical aspects that help make the believability of why the footage looks and sounds the way it does and why we're seeing anything at all to begin with is really brilliant when Mm -hmm. you start to actually pick it apart and look at the thought that was behind some of the architecture of the, the veracity and some of the non-architecting that makes it very real. Right. It often goes unsaid because, you know, the film has other attributes that uh, that are extolled more often. But the performances in this movie are stellar for being improvised over the course of multiple days and, and dozens of hours of footage. The three main actors, Josh, Mike, and Heather, do an incredible job of like really embodying their characters and really conveying all of those like heightened moments of emotion. It's, I mean, the most famous and parodied part of this film is that confessional to smash right up in Heather's face while she's crying into the camera With at the night. Beanie. There is something that is so genuine about it that like I went back and watched it multiple times and it's like I can't get over it. It's it's they don't get praised enough and none of these actors have particularly triumphant careers, but they're doing great work here. Really fantastic work. When I first saw this movie, which I will remind you was 20 plus years ago, and I was 12 or however old I was, I certainly wasn't paying attention to the technical aptitude of their performances. I was feeling that they were very real, but wasn't necessarily making that connection and understanding that there is a level of talent that would need to be there in order for that to happen. But watching it as an adult, I was blown away by their performances. So blown away. And even when I felt a little bit like I could see some of the acting happening, it was still believable enough that it wasn't ever distracting. And and I think one of the things that I love so much about their performances is that so much of what they're doing is subtle. Which is a nutty thing to say in a fucking witch flick. Right. It's it's not a a particularly subtle movie. It's not a subtle movie, but their performances are small and contained. And even when they have explosive moments of terror, those punctuate a film that is, for the most part, outside of that, much more intimate, much more restrained, and much more nuanced. And that's why, again, I think their portrayals are are so real. One of the things about this film that contributes to its legacy and the reason why so many people still talk about it with a level of terror, but also a certain level of reverence is the way that it completely grasps the cultural narrative for a moment. Mm-hmm. We already said that that was in large part due to a brilliant marketing scheme on behalf of the studio that utilized the fledgling internet as a means to distribute all of this mythology and have these like conversations with people who were just figuring out how to use these forums and really leaning into how difficult it was to access information at the time a little bit. Mm -hmm. But there's also something I think that underlies all of that, that is sort of a, a millennial malaise, some sort of like kind of fear of the unknown and and sort of culture at large being on the precipice between like 1999 and Y2K. One One of our core thesis statements about the 1990s is that it starts with a kind of full-throated nationalism 
and ends with a more embittered disillusionment and pessimism for a multitude of reasons. And I think that's very much affirmed in a lot of the movies that were made over the course of that decade. With 1999 in particular, I've, I was doing a lot of thinking about, about this as it relates to the Blair Witch because it was pulling at this idea that you're talking about. There was this sense in 1999 specifically, but in the years leading up to it, this sense of something being wrong and like impending doom, very literally with the conversations around Y2K and the collapse of modern society. And also more abstractly with this dissonance that existed in a postmodern world that just didn't quite feel right. So I started to look at some of the other movies that were made in 1999 or released in 1999. And I just want to go through a list of some of them okay. that, that I feel like kind of get us there. Yeah, hit me with it. So in terms of movies that are sort of definitive for the year and were either huge box office successes or box office bombs, but became very quick cult classics, okay. there is a pretty formidable list. This is basically also a list of, of films for us to do in the future. Oh yeah, big time. Fight Club, which was in fact a box office bomb, but very quickly became a cult classic and right. had a very fervent following. The Sixth Sense, which was quite the opposite. It did Major extremely success. well and garnered six Oscar nominations. In fact, I think it came out very close to the same time as The Blair Witch, like within a month of it. Yes. And competed for, for box office dollars. That sounds right. Magnolia. Oh, the, the crux of the argument of millennial malaise seeping in. 1,000%. complete disillusionment. Complete and utter disillusionment and and just, I don't even know what word I'm thinking of. Sadness. Sadness. Just, just and sad boys. Lots of sad boys and girls in that one. Just a, a very morose movie. Right. Boys Don't Cry. Ah, okay. Which got Hilary Swank her first Oscar. Right. Uh, the Matrix, of course. Right. Which is sort of the apex of this idea of something being wrong and us not quite knowing what, but that there is yeah. something more sinister underneath it all. A, a tear at the, the fabric of this, this artifice that we were starting to acknowledge in our society. Absolutely. Yeah. This questioning of reality. And that definitely reached its climax in that movie. Office Space. Mm -hmm. If you want to get into like a rebellion against corporate culture yeah. and the commodification of humans and, and, and labor alienation and labor and, alienation and oh, yeah. all the things election okay the which, virgin which basically predicted the 2000 election. which basically predicted the 2000 uh, election and just the chaos of, of all of that but uh, oh man Alexander and just Payne like is, establishment yeah. versus you know anti-establishment there's a lot there the Virgin Suicides, okay. which is uh, Sofia Coppola's directorial debut right. and a movie I remember watching and just being utterly tormented by. Mm -hmm. Galaxy Quest. Yeah, Galaxy Quest 2 is, I think, one of the an interesting one to put on that list, if only because... There's again, a reason it's there. It's, ta it's tackling that artifice of popular culture. Right. And it's, and it's pulling back the curtain a little bit to show these broken people that are the last vestiges of an era in which we idolized and, and sort of lionized our, our cultural figures. And again, putting that question to the audience, what is real, what isn't real, right? Mm -hmm. And now here's a doozy along oh. those same lines. Uh -oh. 
being John Malkovich. Hey. hey oh, The ultimate uh, artifice versus reality metafiction, right? And that one did really well. Um, yeah. Got a ton of Oscar noms and was a huge box office success. The Talented Mr. Ripley. Ooh. Another one that is all about constructed persona, this idea of a very mediated, curated reality right. that isn't actually there. And also kind of just like the the dreadful Sisyphean nature of having to perpetuate the artifice. Like there's definitely an argument there about how broken Matt Damon becomes by the end of that film in order to maintain the lie. Yeah, and what does it say about a person living in a postmodern society that we have to perform all of the time, sometimes very literally, mm-hmm. and, and other times in ways that are a little bit more hidden and unspoken? Yeah. Uh, and then lastly on my list here is uh, American Beauty, which again is another one of just yeah. like, all of the dis- the disillusionment and the culmination of, you know, uh, the economic boom of the early 90s sort of coming crashing down on top of us and the darkness that underlies this shiny, bright surface of the suburbs and yeah. what nuclear families look like on the inside. It's the ultimate, like, fuck the system movie in the same way that The Matrix is. Yep. Yeah, and it, and it ended up winning the, the Oscar for Best Picture for that year, too. It so did. There was definitely this this malaise, this feeling like this. And, and it's so interesting that it comes out in a way that is so successful in the Blair Witch Project, where, you know, again, from, from some research and, and, and study here, there are a lot of ideas that were presented by the filmmakers for this movie that presented a much different evil than the one that ends up in the film. And the one that we're actually presented with, the one that wound up being so successful, so sort of uh, tantamount to the success of the movie, is one that we never see. And one that is it just never this, shows itself. Right. And beyond that, too, the thing that makes it so abundantly terrifying is that mere coincidence can be fashioned into a thing that suddenly feels much more sinister and ominous. On the first couple of nights, we don't know for sure if they're actually experiencing something. We don't know if there's just an animal breaking sticks out in the woods or there's an owl hooting or if there's actually some sort of voice out there beyond the tent. All of these like little tiny things become part of this greater narrative of something awful looming just around the corner. The film itself is one that makes the audience question what is real and what isn't real in the actual footage. And then within the story itself, we are often questioning right alongside with the actors whether or not the things they're experiencing are signs of something occult, something evil, something ominous and dangerous. Or something much more terrestrial. Or something much more terrestrial. Or if it's even a thing at all. Like by the end of that film, when they reach this sort of moment of sheer just exhaustion and kind of like mania when they've walked for, you know, a good 12, 15 hours and they've ended up back at the same stream that they started at in the morning and they all just kind of like lose their fucking shit. And that was one of those moments where even even I as the viewer was like, is that the same stream? Or what? 
are, are they like, could their compass have been wrong? Is this forest super fucked up? Is it like the Bermuda Triangle? Right. Like, what is happening? Is it them? Is it some other supernatural force? Is it the forest itself? Totally. And I think that that lack of a clear answer lends itself so well to that central thesis of the movies at the tail end of the 90s here, which is it is metaphorically superimposing this idea of that disillusionment of all of these sort of terrors that we don't really have a literacy for or a language for expressing yet. Right. So this is where I'm this is where I'm going. There is a British documentarian who we were talking about recently um, named Adam Curtis, yeah. who love Adam Curtis, who is also if I were to characterize him, not just a British documentarian, but a philosopher, a political scientist, a sociologist. I think he would call himself just a journalist. He's he's everything. Yeah. And just a wonderfully lyrical storyteller and, and speaker. He put forth a documentary called hypernormalization, which is a term that he borrowed from an anthropologist named Alexei Yurchek. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But he was an anthropologist who, who coined the term in talking about the collapse of the Soviet Union and how it got to be as bad as it did without anyone really expecting it. And so Curtis's argument that he borrows from Yurchek is that this hypernormalization is a thing that is taking place and has been taking place in the West. And he offers up all of these different moments in history, particularly in the 80s and 90s, that kind of lead to this narrowing of an aperture that prevents not only people in power, but but largely a populace from conceiving of alternatives outside of the status quo. And that lack of conceiving of alternatives is the thing that allows a system that is inherently broken to be believed in. There are several things, you know, in the 70s and 80s that that led to kind of this narrowing of a of a view, one of which is the Reagan administration and a lot of austerity politics right. that came out of, you know, a debt crisis in the 70s mm. and this sort of villainization of the Middle East that required yeah. certain things of us in terms of militarizing. And of course, Thatcherism then in the UK as well. Thatcherism in the UK after Kissinger and just a whole bunch of shit. I was thinking about, the reason I bring this up is I was thinking specifically about his idea as it relates to this culmination of what was being created in the 90s, particularly in the late 90s, that it feels like his arguments support a lot of the things that we were seeing as an output. And one of the things he argues is that without a sort of real radicalized left to change anything structurally or materially, what ended up happening is this rise of a, a more liberal left-leaning but highly individualistic crew of people in the arts and in academia are the ones that began to sort of feign radicalization but more in the form of fetishizing it not in the form of actually doing anything right. they sort of become if i remember some of his explanation they cut they become enraptured and mystified by the idea of conflict. Yes. And they don't actually conceive of anything that comes afterward. They just sort of stew in the uncertainty and the chaos of 
the revolution. Well, and there's this there's this idea that comes through some of his conversations about this liberal, faux-radicalized group of artists and academics that in fetishizing the idea of radicalization, they're also using talking about this mistrust, this distaste, this disillusionment as a proxy for actual action, yeah. which it is, of course is not, right? And so we see that play out very materially and very literally in the movies being made at the end of the of the 20th century Completely. where there is no imagination about what an alternative to the status quo looks like but there is this feeling of something is wrong something is wrong and i don't really have the agency or the literacy as you said to talk about it or do anything about it. So what I can do is make a movie about my disillusionment. And what I can be imaginative about is what the darkness looks like. Not what an alternative better reality could be, but what I can fantasize about this sinister dissonance that, that exists where I'm questioning reality, but in questioning reality, that's as agent as I get. And we see that quite literally in movies like Being John Malkovich, in American Beauty, in The Talented Mr. Ripley. In, in The Matrix, like the in pinnacle the Matrix. of all of this, right? Like the, the most sort of like on the nose one, right? All of these people experiencing, like you said, this, this feeling of displacement, this feeling of recognizing and facing down the artifice of the 90s and this sort of neoliberal insidious takeover of all things and depoliticizing them and... and us not having, like you said, that 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 chance to really understand it in a holistic way and describe what it is and to radicalize in a meaningful way against it. So let's do and let's talk about the darkness. Exactly. Exactly that. Interesting too that in this film, the thing that is that sort of insipid, nightmarish specter of terror is a thing that is born and bred from colonial America. Yep. It is a thing that is historicized all the way back to the roots of the founding of the country and has evolved to create a legacy that terrorizes various generations. That's not for nothing, I don't think. I think that it's there is absolutely a larger conversation happening here about, you know, the the greater sins of the country continuing to haunt us into the modern era and beyond. Well, and the the movie is kind of saying there's something wrong with America, right? <laughs> but it doesn't have the alphabet for it. And we see signs of that in the history that they give to the Blair Witch and also more overtly when they actually make a comment about Mary Brown's trailer, this woman who they go to interview before they go into the woods who's been around for a fucking hundred years right. and like knows all the creepy shit and has apparently seen the Blair Witch. They sort of make an offhanded joke about how she's, oh, there she is. She's got the American flag plastered up on her trailer, mm -hmm. which is re read as this kind of derogatory comment about intense nationalism right. for a country that the younger generation may be disillusioned by. All of this to say, if you look at Blair Witch within the context of these other movies that were being made or released rather in 1999, 
They all have this through line of questioning what is real, of disillusionment, of impending doom that we can't quite name or have the language for visually or verbally, but we know is there, something is wrong. And the Blair Witch does this quite explicitly and I think is a very carved out expression of those feelings. Mm -hmm. Profoundly too, I'm thinking about a lot of the movies that you're talking about and all of them end with some sort of catharsis. Yes. But, but very little in terms of a resolution. The Matrix, famously ends with one villain being subdued, but with the greater war still forthcoming. Yes. American Beauty ends with the character who rebels against the system being murdered. Magnolia ends with a literal plague and reigning of frogs that, you know, kind of shakes all of these characters out of this moment of self-reflection and into a place of connectivity together in, in a mutual experience around a thing, but without much to to reckon with after. There's just frog carcasses everywhere. Yes. And this movie too literally ends with the death of the artist. Yes. It does not provide an answer to a way through and an escape from the terror, but rather that the terror consumes even those who try to expose and name it. And even the death of the artist in The Blair Witch is not explicit, right? It's not even this nameable, concrete, final... It's incredibly inconclusive. It's incredibly inconclusive and it's terrorizing as all fucking get out. But it's not a resolution. It's not, um, there's no finality to it. It, You still feel so unsettled and Mm -hmm. so uncertain about what happened even after the very climax and end of the movie. A lot of that can be explained with some of Curtis's arguments about this inability for an American and a Western populace to reckon with the very real terrors of our society. And so in doing, in our inability to reckon with that, we skew toward the obfuscation, toward the simplifying, toward these patently false narratives, all the while wrestling with the fact that we know something is wrong which leads to this dissonance. It leads to this questioning. It leads to this feeling of impending doom. But we don't actually want to go over the cliff. It's like, I, I was thinking about it and I was like, it's like Wiley e. Coyote when he- <laughs> When he's just running before runs he realizes. Runs off the cliff yeah. and is standing in midair before he realizes that he is not on the cliff and then falls. It's that. I think that's excellent. That's a great argument. I, th- I think that we may have unlocked the Blair Witch have Project. Have we unlocked the Blair, the Blair Witch Project? I think we may have figured it out. And all movies made in 1999? Huzzah. Except for Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> <laughs> the, the transcendental apolitical the one. The transcendental apolitical one. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about just one more thing that is slightly more terrestrial. One of the things that the argument about this hypernormalization gets at is the way that we can't classify or name any of the the kind of terrors and how everything sort of gets compounded into an, an explanation, at the very least for the terror, if not for the answer to it. Yes. Right? And so one of the things that I think is so interesting about that is its marriage to the film's technological uh, fortitude and the way that it used misinformation online. It's a conversation that is still happening today and in you know, the fledgling era of internet usage, 
was a thing that was utilized to intense and meaningful effect. Unfortunately, it seems like we as a society have not really evolved in terms of our literacy and our capacity to distinguish what is fact and what is fiction online, while the reach of the internet has become that much more great and profound. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, when something like, is the Blair Witch real or not, could be partitioned to a specific part of the internet, i.e. a forum on a website, Mm -hmm. now with social media misinformation can travel at the speed of light and gain virality within hours without any sort of verifiability. And, you know, when I think about the misinformation campaign that was used for this film, I can't help but make parallels to modern conspiracy theories like Pizzagate or like QAnon, Mm -hmm. you know, in keeping with a lot of the traditions of the Blair Witch and its mythology, things that are seemingly disassociated and disconnected or have very loose connections all of a sudden become part of this snowballing effect that makes everything part of its narrative. Yep. QAnon specifically, you know, has this sort of way to make every one of its predictions either a testament to the the reality of Q's experience and everything that fails to actually occur part of a greater... Uh, hostility towards Q and the forces of good. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's coincidence that the language that we use to describe something like the Blair Witch and the way that we imbue that particular narrative with this idea of Satanism and evil and this kind of moribund specter of badness, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of just like pure evil gets translated a lot into these conspiracy theories. It is not about a difference of opinion and it is not about people doing things that are bad or that you disagree with. It is literally a fight for the soul of people, especially with QAnon. It is literally Donald Trump as this spiritual figure endowed with powers from the Lord above in order to fight the satanic cabal of Democrats and celebrities in Hollywood who are harvesting adrenochrome from children, right? Like he's fighting off actual satanic evil. Totally. In the same way that those narratives had such a a profundity when they are leveled in the arts and in media, right? There, There's a way of, of driving and hitting the heart of something instinctual in us that just feels scary. Well, and it has to be dark and sinister and satanic because there has to be urgency. It's the it's the way that we drum up urgency. It's the way that we galvanize a doubting populace to string together and explain the unexplainable. If we just attribute fucking evil to shit, then you can explain away literally anything. You can explain away all the things and none of the things. And so this like dark satanic force that, you know, Donald Trump is fighting with his pure you, heart of gold. You can't even say it without laughing. No, it's so absurd. with his pure heart of gold <laughs> is the thing that galvanizes people, right? You don't have to understand it. You just have to know there's evil here, right? right? It doesn't have to make sense. Evil doesn't make sense. There's no rationality. Mm-hmm. And that is like how you just couch everything in a nonsense umbrella. And it qualifies everything that Donald Trump does in this aura of innate goodness. Yes. It's all absolutely insane. It's insane. But this 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 kernel that you're getting at that I, I think is really spot on about our evolution not keeping up pace with 
the content we are consuming, right? That the content has gotten smarter. The algorithms have gotten smarter. Right. The the hoaxing has gotten smarter. And it often takes on a will of its own. But that the consuming populace is is not necessarily at that same level of being evolved enough to discern what is true and what isn't. And because so much of our experience is spent online and in a digital space, that becomes our place where real things are. That becomes a proxy for a lived experience. We were talking about this prior to recording that oftentimes what we see in the digital space can directly counter a real, tangible, lived experience. But we have imbued so much weight and certainty and veracity to the digital space and what we what we see and consume there that oftentimes it can directly counter a lived experience or completely obfuscate it and make us not see it at all, which is like how capitalism functions, right? It is this terribly monstrous, sinister thing that most people can't even articulate to you exists. It just is the way that it is. And all the narratives that are espoused in mainstream media or in art that reflects back to us a lot of these same constructed narratives, these narrowing narratives, that all of these things are there to simplify for us so that we don't actually use our lived experiences to inform our perspectives right. on what is real. And and to verify things in any way. And so we start relying on other sources to verify things for us. And who we put our trust in oftentimes is not necessarily who we want to be the arbiters of truth in our society. No. But that is a whole other conversation and I'm sure one that will come up as we talk about other films. All this to say though, the Blair Witch is fucking scary. It is scary as well. On balls. like 9,000 <laughs> levels, right? And you should still watch it. <laughs> and you should still watch it. Watch it for all of the, you know, morbid societal and political implications that may or may not be extrapolated and watch it because it'll just scare you shitless, period. End of discussion. I think that we have successfully figured out what The Blair Witch is about. Thanks, Tim Burton. Thanks, Tim Burton. <laughs> you, you... Tim Burton strengthened our resolve to find something to talk about. He really did. (laughs) Transcendental filmmaker. I now pray at the church of Tim Burton. Forget everything I said a week ago. You were singing a totally different tune. I know. You know what? We're going to do... Let's do another Tim Burton movie soon here. I'm down. Yeah. Well, that I think is a really good place to close. I'll do all of the formalities here at the end. You can follow us at HitFactoryPod on Twitter. We also have our Patreon running. We're still donating all of our proceeds for the month of October to Planned Parenthood and giving to that wonderful organization. So please subscribe there if you haven't already. Patreon.com slash HitFactoryPod. How's that? That's great. Thank you so much. Um, (laughs) That concludes, I think, our coverage of Spooky Season. Next week, we're going to be diving right into some political 90s cinema to get us in the mood for the election day. The spookiest season of yeah, all. Yeah, spooky season continues <laughs> into election season. Yeah, I was going to say, don't say we're we're at the we've we've finished our spooky season. The, the the real terror is still on its way. It's just around the corner, folks. Yeah, and uh without saying too much, we are working on securing some really awesome guests for next month 
and hopefully have a lot of awesome movies coming your way then. So continue to stay tuned. Subscribe. Thanks all. Thanks. Celebrities are hot because they all drink baby blood. And Donald Trump is saving us from satanic pedo scum. And we are actually. We're saving the world. What do you think? He looks like shit because he refuses to put baby blood against his lips. Why is his name all over Epstein's list? Cause he's been playing the long game, duh He had to trick us Celebrities are hot because They all drink baby blood And Donald Trump looks like wet ass Because he doesn't do that stuff if, uh, if I can help save the world from problems, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to put myself out there. I've heard these are people that love our country and they just don't like seeing it.